grateful for that truth that the Lord never lets go of us. Aren't you glad that the gospel is about Jesus holding on to us, not us holding on to him? That's the way it is. Well, uh, just a couple of things I want to mention before we get into the message, which is today, this is going to shock you uh, if you were listening to the music, but it's about storms, storms in life, you know, that come along. Uh, perfect, perfect preparation of our hearts for God's Word today in, in the music. Um, uh, uh, but a couple things I do need to mention. We will gather here Wednesday night. If you've never done this before, can I encourage you, first of all, to fast with us. We would like for you to fast from after dinner Tuesday night until after we meet together. Um, our elders typically go to Zaxby's and have our meeting after the service. The deacons think we're less than spiritual for doing it, but you know how deacons are, you know, with those kinds of things. Uh, just kidding. Uh, you know, here's the great thing about our deacons. Every single one of them could be elders. It, it's not a matter. It's not a matter of, of status. or it's a, ma- it's a matter of serving in the place that God has called you, gifted you. Um, so... But we will get together and fast. And look, there are two things. Well, we'll fast during the day. If you can only fast one meal, if it's breakfast or if it's lunch, maybe you've got blood sugar issues, uh, you know, whatever, it's fine. Just do what you can. Just allow your heart, especially on that day, to be constantly turned to God. And ask Him in two particular areas. One, for our budget. And for the process of this year. Now look, when you see that budget, you're going to see, whoa, these numbers. Look, as Scott said, they're explainable. We're really very different. We're in a very very similar place this year to where we were last year with, with a few exceptions. And there still should be some money coming in to help cover some of those other deficits. But, and, and the the insurance makes it look really skewed, but again, we don't know what those numbers are going to be. They're most likely going to come way down, Um, but we're not certain of that, so that's what the numbers are. But here's the process. We present the budget to the congregation. Uh, If you're not used to elder rule or elder-led churches like we are, we have an annual church meeting. I love the sound of those words together annual church meeting, Um, and our desire above everything is to preserve the unity, is to protect the unity. We're never called in Scripture to build unity. We are to protect the unity that is there. So here's the way the system works. The the, the men who wrote the Constitution, the the founders of this church, um, thought this through very carefully and sought to be biblical in every way that we operate and in the things that, to which the Scripture doesn't speak. The, the, again, the, 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 um, the, the systems indicate a great deal of prayer and wisdom and thought that went into it. So, a proposal is made to the congregation, and this can happen at any time during the year, and then you have two weeks to pray about this and to contact an elder if you have an issue, if you have a question. That's the time to contact 
an elder. Now, we will have discussion in our meeting, which is going to be two weeks from Wednesday night. So you've actually got, you know, about 17, 18 days to think and to pray about this. But if you have any real serious concerns, please come to an elder between now and then. We'll be happy to talk to you as a group even. Um, And then on the night when we gather together, then you'll have an opportunity on a form to say, yes, I've prayed about this, and I believe this is God's, this to be God's will for our church. Uh, I have prayed about this, or I have not prayed about this, but in this matter, I will submit to uh, the leadership of the elders, or three, uh, I do not agree with this. I do not think this. I've prayed about this. I do not think this to be the will of God, and I will express my concerns to an elder. So um, that's going to be the process. Now, This week is a good time to be praying about our needs. Look, uh, some of the things, this carpet needs to be done two years ago, right? And that's like $18,000, $20,000 somewhere in that neighborhood. And we really do want to get moving on this sooner rather than later. So there are several things that have come up that we've put off that just need attention in this building. And so that's going to be part of the process. So, And, and really, at, at cer- certain point, we don't have a choice. We have to take care of certain things. Uh, parking lots and, and, and the roof and, and, and different things. When those things come up, so we're trying to also, the deacons have also put us on a path of, of planning uh, much better than we have in the past and trying to prepare in five-year increments, five- to ten-year increments. And so all of that will be reflected in the budget. But as you fast, pray that God will touch the hearts of our body. A number of you are giving well beyond what you're called to give, and that is sustaining us. But if all of us do what we can, God doesn't keep the books the same way that people keep books. And if you can only give, you know, $15 a month, if that's all you can give, if that's 10% of your income, if you make $150 a month and you can only give 15, then the Lord is going to stretch that, I have no doubt. As we are able, let's give. And we're going to be praying about that on Wednesday. Another thing we will be praying about is the number of needs that are in that exist in our congregation, especially of a medical nature. A number of you have medical issues right now. We just want to lift up our brothers and sisters who are in quite a storm right now and need uh, to sense the Savior's presence, the Savior's touch, and our love and care for them as well. In fact, our story today, Mark 4 is one, at the end of Mark 4 is one that is very familiar to you if you have been in church, if you have been in Scripture at all through the years where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and he goes to sleep and it's a pretty bad storm, and he stays asleep, and we'll, we'll get to that. Let me, let me begin by asking you, if you are a fearful person, are you a fearful person? Uh, I am. Not, not nearly as fearful as I used to be, 
But I can still be a bit jumpy if the circumstances call for it. And you never know when the situation is going to call for, you know, being afraid. So I'm not as fearful as you used to be, but I can get there in a hurry. Over the next two to three weeks of Mark, we're going to find people who are, as we look at Mark, we're going to find people who are not only fearful, but they're desperate. And these people are desperate to get to Jesus. After this encounter, this horrific encounter with the storm that the disciples endure, we're going to see a man who has been possessed by so many demons that their name is Legion. We're going to find a woman who has a, a, a terrible disease and she spent every penny that she has given them to doctors and, and, and she's only gotten worse. Nothing has helped her and her life is ebbing away. <clears throat> we see a religious leader whose child is quite ill and he's desperate to help her and save her. And in the midst of all of this, John the Baptist has been arrested and he's had some serious doubts about Jesus. John the Baptist has serious doubts about Jesus and he sends his followers, go see if he's the one we were expecting. And Jesus, (coughs) of course, didn't live up even to John's expectations. So he's discouraged, depressed. John thought Jesus was going to be a militaristic kind of a leader, a military leader. And so unless something happened, when they came back with the report that Jesus sent to them, If John didn't receive that as it was supposed to, he died confused and disappointed. All of that was in the first century. But thankfully, here in the 21st century, technology, medicine, and education have pretty much eradicated fear, the needs for fear. Actually, um, probably it's even worse when the advances of our modern age can no longer help us because we assume that we can make it through if we would just gather our resources and we're pretty good at that. And no, life comes at us in all kinds of ways and it comes in creative, modern packages. So what what are we going to do? Well, first of all, just just get in the boat with Jesus. Get in the boat with Jesus. You may be desperate and you want a quick solution to your problem. I get that. That's the way I'm natured. But trust in a gracious Eternal God is always better than a solution to our liking when it's not a part of His plan. Trust in an eternal, a gracious eternal God is always better than a solution 
to our liking of our problems that is not part of his plan. Always. Our text today is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Would you please stand and we will read this together. On that day, that day, by the way, when people were ridiculously offended or accused, uh, excuse me, confused about the parables that Jesus had told, just like many of you were confused after last week. We're in the same boat with, with everybody else. When you listen to Jesus and you say, huh, what? On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, indeed, who is this that even the sea and the wind obey him? He's God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer, the protector, the redeemer. He's our savior. Jesus, we need you. We need trust in you. Give that to us this day. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Well, this is a very brief account of a terrifying night on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus And his disciples. Uh, But there is more than enough information and emotion in this story to capture our attention. uh, And to cause us to pause and to stop for a little bit and think about it. They were on the Sea of Galilee. It's the lowest lake on the face of the earth. 628 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains and the ravines in between those mountains make for wind tunnels that 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 come crashing down onto the to the lake and, and create these violent and sudden and violent and terrifying storms. Most of these come during the day when that when the hot air and the cold air clash and they come flying down on so most fishing is done on the sea of galilee at night uh 
I'm sure some of you have been there. How many of you have been on the Sea of Galilee? I've been on the Sea of Galilee, a handful of you have uh, on, a, on a boat. But if you were there, most likely you were there in, in, the, in the daytime. Just imagine what it would be like for one of those storms to come up at night. Uh, <clears throat> Luckily for the people on this particular boat, there were four men who had made their living fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and they were used to night storms. All four were on board, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they'd seen storms before, but probably nothing like this. Now, there there were other boats. Just imagine this. It's a little armada, you know. There's a group of boats going on. But those who were on this boat with Jesus were ones who were in, were in intimate fellowship with him. So, look, either you're coming out of a storm in your life, you're in the middle of one, or you're going into one. So, just imagine yourself on this boat with Jesus. <clears throat> I mean, this storm had to be quite a doozy, as we would say. I mean, look... The boat is probably somewhere around 30 feet long. That's right, Stephen, cut the air, and I'm going to turn up the heat here in a minute, buddy. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Actually, this is hopefully going to bring it down a little bit, the temperature down. And it's the Lord who brings the heat anyway. It's not me. Um, so, so a 30-foot-long boat, I mean, it's not a rowboat, but it's not a cruise liner either. I mean, can you imagine this boat? It's rocking back. It feels like it's just going to tip over backwards. I've been on a horse one time that I thought was going all the way over. And actually, this horse did go over, all the way over back on somebody one time, trying to get his rider off of him a little bit later. I would have never gotten on otherwise. But I know these people were thinking, why did we get on this boat? I mean, it's good. And then all of a sudden, it starts to roll forward, and then it's like nothing, and it goes crashing down and takes on water. And it feels like it's going to be swamped any minute. <clears throat> Shall I continue, or are you seasick already? I mean, we don't want any of that. So, how, how is it possible that anybody could sleep? through such a violent storm, in such a spare boat. How is that possible? Well, for starters, Jesus was exhausted. Have you ever been that exhausted? That you could flat sleep through anything? I'm not talking about in your teenage years. I'm talking about as an adult, you know. You're just so exhausted I, for many of us, this morning was an hour of blessed extra sleep. For many of you, this was an hour of convincing your child that it should be <laughs> another hour of blessed sleep <clears throat> and trying to explain to them. Day after day, just imagine what Jesus had gone through. Day after day, he had preached and he had healed and he had cast out, he had done spiritual battle with demons. And the opposition was building. And even his disciples were confused. We're like, I'm, I, I'm not sure what you just said, but I'm going with it, whatever, whatever it is. When you think about it, 
This is a beautiful picture of both Jesus' humanity and his divinity being in play. I mean, he understood the mission that God had given him, and he trusted him so much that he knew that the Lord would wake him when he's supposed to be awake. He just went to sleep in the peace of God, knowing that this is God's in charge here. I'm not worried about a storm. But by the way, this is the only event in which we find Jesus asleep. Now, Luke and, and, and Matthew both talk about this event as well. But we, we see Jesus up all night praying about who his disciples should be. We see him up all night before Gethsemane, or before he's arrested in Gethsemane. But here is the only place in Scripture where we see Jesus asleep. He was human. And he was sleeping, and for some reason, that aggravated the fire out of the disciples. I mean, he just made them mad. Now, I know you've never lashed out at people you love when you're facing a crisis. Right? That's never happened to you, right? Nor have you ever felt like Jesus had abandoned you, even though you could just reach out and touch him. I mean, you're in crisis, and he's asleep. I doubt seriously that the disciples were angry with Jesus because they didn't feel like he was doing his part. They were the experts. You know, they probably said at times, he didn't know anything about fishing, you know, until he said, throw the nets on the other side. You remember that story. But we, if they could have handled this, they would have. I, I, but they'd never seen anything like this before. And at the very least, they said, Jesus, wake up and panic with us. Come on. And maybe that's where you are right now. I mean, this fallen world has thrown a lot at you before, but you've never really seen anything like this, this storm that you're facing right now. Never seen anything like it. You're desperate. I mean, you don't typically trouble the Lord for the little things, you know. He's given you resources. He's given you a good mind. And so, by, by the way, we should never do that. We should bring Him into every part of our lives. But when life is desperate, we are most likely going to turn to Him. And in fact, He's designed it that way. Oftentimes, he designs storms so that we will look to him and that we will cry out for help. And I'm sure that you've cried out in fear, like the disciples did this time. Jesus, help me! And I don't doubt that you've also exhibited the other emotion that the disciples had that, that night, which is anger. I mean, listen to their questions. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? What the, that's probably the most ridiculous question in all of Scripture. Jesus, don't you care? But they were beside themselves. You don't even care enough to wake up and worry with us. It's ironic, isn't it, that when Jesus is in Gethsemane, Begging, pleading with his disciples, stay awake with me. Stay awake and pray. 
when he was facing something that no human will ever face, ever, it will never come close. And they said, yeah, okay, okay. And went to sleep. The disciples' fear in this storm was understandable. Their anger was irrational. But, but we get it anyway. I mean, in fact, you can't expect people who think that they're about to die any second to be rational in their speech and their thoughts and the ways that they interact with others. Why? Because when we're out of control, well, we're out of control. And that's not a comfortable place for any of us. How typical for the creation to scold the Creator. How like the servant to sass the master. The disciples rebuked Jesus essentially for taking a nap. When he woke up, Jesus delivered a few rebukes of his own. First he rebuked the sea and in a moment it went from violently dangerous to calm as glass. No wind. I mean, look, it may have... Or it may have, it's just, we don't know, but either way, it was shocking. With just a word, Jesus transforms a great storm into a great calm. But rather than being relieved, the disciples were terrified. Think about this. They were more scared of who Jesus was than they were of what was going on all around them. I mean, his, his power, Jesus' power was more frightening than nature's wrath. The, they'd seen the healings. They'd seen the exorcisms. If they hadn't already, the chronology is a little difficult to get. But if they hadn't already, they're going to see him raise people from the dead. In fact, he's going to send them out and tell them to do that very thing. Heal people, raise them from the dead. But this was especially terrifying. I think think we're cold off now, Stephen. So I'm freezing up here, so I can only imagine that. Yes, sir, would you please cut at least one side off. There you go, thank you. I'll hear about that. (laughs) See, the disciples were exactly where we are. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was yet. But this had to move them in the direction of, of knowing that Jesus was more than just the Messiah or one who was sent from God, but that he was God himself. Think about their question, who is this? That can do this. At this moment, everything was calm. Everything was calm, that is, except for the disciples. After rebuking the wind, Jesus turned to the terrified disciples and he said, Where's your faith? Did something happen to your faith? You believe me yesterday, what's happened to you? But listen, both Jesus' actions and his rebuke were driven by his love for his followers. 
not just the fact that he calmed the storm, but his rebuke and his challenge to them to grow in their faith was out of love for him. In the parables, Jesus was not calling these religious leaders to to have faith in him. He was calling out, he was judging their hard hearts. But here, with his followers, with those who believe Jesus, he was saying, you just need to believe at a higher level. You need to trust everything to me. Having said that, by by the way, no doubt Jesus' words would have the impact of of, of convicting a lot of people who didn't follow him. And even if not then, maybe after Pentecost, we read that many priests believed after they had opposed Jesus earlier in his ministry. But his rebuke to his disciples was of a different nature than his pronouncements of judgment on those who refused to believe that he was sent from God. Jesus' rebuke of his disciples is a call for trust to the one who controls Every aspect of nature. Jesus rebuke of you. For your lack of faith in this storm. Is a call. For you to trust him. Trust not only that he is able. To calm the storm. But to trust that his purposes for you are good. The words roll so easily off of our tongue and off of our, out of our mouth. God is sovereign. God is good. Until we face a particularly violent storm and then we're tempted to say, God is sovereign and I am mad. I don't get this. I don't know about you, but I'm not surprised when Satan attacks me in my weak areas. I'm not. Look, we all know that there are certain tendencies in certain families that are passed down from one generation to another, like depression, um, addictive personalities, anger, lust, um, our tendency to exaggerate broken relationships, all of those things, it's very easy to be more prone to it because of genetics. And we're not surprised when Satan comes at us in our weak areas. But what about when he attacks us where we're strong? I mean, just think about these disciples. They knew the sea. They knew that they could handle anything. They had handled everything, but they thought they were going to die. This was beyond their control. I mean, you're a hard worker. You're great with finance, and then you lose your job. And you can't find another one. You're a physical specimen, and an accident renders you unable to function like you did in the past, or an illness instantly and dramatically changes your future. You're gifted with interpersonal and relation skills, but relational skills, but all of a sudden, People are angry with you and they walk away. They abandon relationship with you. You're brilliant. But your mind just doesn't function like it used to. And you're, you're, you're concerned that this is more than just age that's coming along. What's, what's going on? 
No wonder you're scared. No wonder you're angry. Good news. Jesus is not going to leave you in that place of fear and anger. If you believe that Jesus was and is God, that he died to save you from judgment, from the judgment you deserved as a result of your sin, indeed, his rebuke, his call to you, even his rebuke, is designed to bring you to a place of greater faith. And his rebuke is administered in love. It's okay to be angry like Job was. But if you're going to stay in the place Job stayed, be prepared for God to speak to you the same way that he spoke to Job. Now, life's going to get good again. But it's going to be tough when he comes at you like Job. His dealing will be in love, but it will be with purpose. If you, his follower will just receive and trust. He knows you. He loves you. He's bringing you to a place of trust, which is a place of rest. There's just not much rest in our day, is it? Even when we're not busy, our hearts feel a little restless or a little troubled or look sometimes God uses violent storms to bring us to a place of rest scripture teaches us that God's design is for us to have greater faith not necessarily calmer seas Jesus calmed the storm that was overwhelming the disciples this particular time. Remember, even though Mark wrote this gospel, whose account is this? Most likely it was one of the disciples. You remember who? Peter. Peter. This is really Peter's gospel that was written by Mark. Peter supplied the details. The account of this storm has the unmistakable mark of an eyewitness account. This is obviously someone who was there. This is not somebody who's telling, oh yeah, I heard about this storm. And this, this, this was someone who was there. Peter was there. And this time, Jesus spared Peter's life and all of those who were with him. You remember later, when Jesus was arrested... And Peter was interrogated. He was accused of being associated with Jesus. He thought the only way out was to lie. He was convicted that it was great sin. And he repented. And Jesus, after his resurrection, warmly forgave Peter and welcomed him back into the family or into the, just back into fellowship with him. And he equipped him for service. Just after the storm, Jesus called the disciples to faith. But they were more terrified of his power than they were angry with what had appeared to be his indifference. And I know that some of you have experienced that as well. You're you're more terrified of the fact that God has delivered you from a storm 
and has blessed you when you deserve nothing but condemnation than you are when nature takes its course and you get what you deserve. But that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus took what we deserve. And in him, we receive mercy and deliverance and forgiveness and freedom in Christ rather than the condemnation we deserve. And all of these blessings, all of the blessings that we have in life are found in Jesus. If you belong to him, And you feel like you're going to be swamped in this storm. Know this. He's in the boat with you. And that's the point. Trust him even when it seems like he's asleep. And even if it feels like he doesn't care. Jesus trusted the Father... In this storm. And later he would trust him. Even when he desperately wanted the father's will to be something else. When he said father if it be your will. Let this cup pass from me. This cup of judgment. This cup of sin. The wrath towards sin. That was to be directed at all of us. Was going to be directed at him. And he was going to. He was being called to drink this cup of God's judgment to the very last dregs. And he said, if there's any way, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We all know that we learn from trials. We, we, sometimes we wonder why we're going through this later it makes sense sometimes we wonder why we're going why we're going through this and it never makes sense i know that you want a divine purpose for the current storm that threatens your well-being or even your existence and there is a divine purpose but sometimes god just wants us to trust What if he doesn't reveal to you why it is you have to go through this storm? Is that okay? That's the point it needs to be. Peter would eventually come to trust at that level. Even though he was delivered from this storm on the Sea of Galilee. Even though he was forgiven for his denial of Jesus later. Eventually, Peter would be executed as a consequence of his service for the gospel, his commitment to the gospel. History tells us that Peter died well. So well, in fact, he said, you want to crucify me? Don't crucify me like my Lord was crucified. I'm not worthy. Do it upside down. And there's pretty good, pretty good agreement amongst people that there is some meat to that tradition Peter died in faith he died not only for his faith he died in faith last year um, 
Sean and David and I and maybe a few others went to see Stanley Hauerwas, who is a professor at Duke, phenomenal thinker and writer and lover of Christ. Um, He was at Campbell. And he said, you know what we don't talk about in our churches and we desperately need to? That's how to die well. Because we don't think death should happen. I mean, let's come on. We can avoid it. We can until we can't. Peter died well. He died not only for his faith, he died in faith. He eventually came to understand that life storms are designed by God to bring us more and more into a place of trust. And whatever your trial is, God has designed it for you. Well, do you not think Satan's, oh yeah, Satan's a part of it. But remember when, when Paul said, Satan, uh, I have this thorn in the flesh, it's a messenger of Satan. But the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you. Trust me in this, Paul. In other words, even though God is using Satan, this is custom design by God for you. I want you to hear these words that Peter wrote in life, later in life, in his life. His words are the very word of God to you. The amazing thing about scripture is that when you believe that the Bible is God's word, then the word leads you to belief. And that's not circular. It's just a process. The more you believe, the more you believe. These words have the power to change your life, and they do so by causing you just to trust. Scripture increases your faith. So as we read, instead of letting the storms in your life wash you away, just like the disciples thought that night, I'm going to be washed away. Let these words wash over you and bring you into a place of trust. Hear the word then, this word, to learn about God and his ways of love for you, particularly in the context of your current trial, and take comfort in his love for you. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, An unfading kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials. That's true you are grieved by various trials so that... The tested, here's the purpose, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's, that's, that's what your faith is designed for. To bring you in not only relationship, but into eternal life with Jesus. Let's pray. end of your rope have you got nowhere else to go and is it now that we yell at Christ where are you I urge you not to do that in our Bible study this last week our home group or actually maybe it was a week or so ago we had um, mentioned this text that we studied this morning and we have a tendency as people to compartmentalize and put things in their place. It helps us order things. And I'm asking you not to do that with God. I do that myself. We all do. And so as a home group and as a family, I urge you this week to contemplate from the last part of that scripture, who then is this? We place God in our box, and we really shouldn't. So contemplate on who then is this. This is a God who loves us. And so as you rise, I would like for you all to stand in the reading of his word. We're going to Romans chapter 8. This is Paul speaking, and he's writing, a, writing to us about God's everlasting love. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's us. It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go in peace.